The five-year-old son asked his mother what she wanted for Mother's Day. And the mother said, I would like three well-behaved children. And he said, really, there are six of us? (laughs) Yeah, don't quit my day job. I get it. We are in Isaiah, the gospel, according to Isaiah, is our series. Chapter 12 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. Um, The series name, we're calling again the gospel according to Isaiah. He has a lot to say, Isaiah the prophet, showing us Jesus in many ways, in in many places throughout our study. We'll see that again this morning uh, in a a powerful way in chapter 12. Uh, Before we look at the text of Scripture, I think it's important that we just quickly go and look at its context. We've gone through 11 chapters so far, and we've recognized and we saw that God, through Isaiah, has been calling his people, calling really out his people to their covenant breaking. We saw the sins of pride, uh, the sin of the fear of man rather than the fear of God. We saw the sin of abusive leadership, the failure to trust God, looking for uh, looking to others for their protection and their future, which is idolatry, rather than looking to their God. They have sinned by oppressing the poor and oppressing the fatherless. And therefore, God sent uh, his heavy hand of discipline and chastisement upon his people by the Assyrian nation. We've seen that. They were directed and sent by God to deliver God's punishment to God's people. And although we've seen this pattern of sin and brokenness and rebellion, we've also seen this wonderful pattern of of love and of grace and of mercy of God. We especially saw that last week in chapter uh, 11, uh, when the prophet declared that in the midst of ruin, the the trees have fallen, and really uh, uh, a figurative uh, speech of, of the brokenness and the pride and destruction of God's people, that a shoot from the trump of Jesse was going to sprout and bear fruit. Chapter 11, verse 1. This, this promised king that was given to the King David, a promise given to King David. Jesse, we know, is the father of David. This promise was given to David. As someone will come, we see in chapter 11, the first couple of verses, who will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be, his new kingdom, this king will come with a new kingdom that that will be characterized by this universal peace. The whole creation will be back into, brought back into shalom. See that again, chapter 11. The Davidic dynasty will no longer continue to be a fallen tree, but this one who will bring this eternal messianic kingdom will show that the people of God will prosper. And then chapter 11 closes with God dealing, uh, excuse me, leading his people, bringing them into safety through all kinds of hindrances and difficulties. He brings them to himself into this messianic kingdom, just like he led the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. Set in the last few verses of chapter 11. We said last week that that is true for all believers who have trusted and put their faith in God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, that by grace, by grace alone, and, and, and by God's deliverance, his omnipotent power, he will bring us safely home. Up to now, Isaiah, through chapters 1 through 12, through chapters 1 through 11, has shown us that Jesus is the branch of the Lord, chapter 4. Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us, chapter 
7. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one, a child who's born, whose name is Wonderful, and Counselor, and Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, chapter 9. Jesus is the promised King, the eternal Son of David, who will reign on his throne and over his throne and his kingdom forever and ever, chapter 9. Jesus is the shoot and root of David in chapter 11. He will stand as a signal, we saw that last week, calling all of God's people to himself. And because Jesus the King has come, we said last week, the kingdom restoration has begun. The King is here. He has come the first time. But it's not complete. It's already and the not yet. Because Jesus will come again like all the promises of Scripture. He will come again and everything broken will be fixed. Fear gone, suffering and tears gone, sin will be vanquished, joy will be permanent. The promise we have as God's children. The future hope, God will reign and God will rule and God will put down anything and everything that is in opposition to his reign. That's the hope we have. And now there's only one thing left for God's people to do. There's only one thing we can do. Worship him. Glorify him. Praise him. Trust him. Give him thanks. Sing and shout for joy. For our God is our salvation. And therefore declare his glory, Psalm 96 6 says. Among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. That's what chapter 12 is. That's what it's all about. They've experienced the discipline of the Lord and now they're rejoicing over the unfailing love as they experience his amazing grace in his God's salvation. Isaiah chapter 12 is that response. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, Isaiah. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great, is, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God had a blessing to the reading of his word. Scripture tells us that God's first and highest priority in your salvation and my salvation is his own glory. And the question for us is, how are we, the people of God, going to respond to his glory, respond to his grace? That's the question Isaiah now takes us. And the central focus of this song, of these verses, as it should be, is on God himself. God chose us, Ephesians 1 says. God chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters 
through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Three headings. We're going to wrap up the sermon. We're going to spend some time singing today. That's where we're going. We're going to, we're going to do what the text tells us to do. The band will lead us as we sing and shout. But three headings as we look at these just six verses. There's been a change in condition that's prompting God's people to, to praise and worship him. They look to, to God as the source and strength of their praise. And in their praise, they will declare and demonstrate who God is and all that God has done. Number one, the change in prompted. The change in conditions prompting our praise. I'll say in that day, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, you were anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Verse 2a, behold, God is my salvation. You will say in that day, the day of salvation, when God finishes all that he began, starting that work in you, he'll bring it to completion. He'll bring you home safely on that day. Not the day of judgment, not the day of, of, of dread, not the day of discipline, but on the day of my salvation. I will give thanks to my God. You know, a heart that is thankful is a heart that is joyful. A heart that is thankful is a heart that is joyful. Well, why? Why? His anger has subsided. That's what the, the prophet tells us. His anger has subsided. His hand of discipline now has become the hand of comfort. See that in verse 1. But we, if you're tracking with us over the past two months, three months, whatever it's been, we recognize, we, we've seen the actions, the deeds, misdeeds of, of the people of God. So why now is it comfort is a good question to ask. Why is God not angry? Why is God now dealing with his rebellious, sinful, and prideful people in comfort and not judgment? Good question. Remember, we talked about God being angry, angry at sin. Not like he's in a bad mood. He got nothing better to do. He didn't take his meds this morning. He's angry against sin. Because he's holy and holy and holy. And therefore, God cannot, he will not embrace or accept it's okay to be sinful and rebellious. Sweeping under the rug our sin is not an option for a holy God. If he was not holy, he would be worthy of worship. If he's not just and righteous and perfect. But Isaiah is declaring that God's anger has subsided. And therefore, there has to be a reason. Circumstances must have changed that prompted God's people to receive comfort, not discipline. And to give thanks and praise to, it, to their God. Now, before we get to that reason, let me point out to you, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, that chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you could see Isaiah uses the pronoun my and I, obviously singular, chapter 1 and 2. I will give thanks. My salvation, verse 2. I will trust. God is my song, my, my, uh, my strength, my song, my salvation. If you move down to verse 3, you'll see the word you. If you're from the south, you know what that means. That means y'all. It's, it's plural. In verse 3, he goes from, this, from verse 2, he goes from the singular. In verse 3, that's a plural you. Okay, it's plural. If you go down to verse 6, you'll see the word your. 
That could be both, but that's actually singular, but he's speaking to all your, the inhabitants, all the people collectively, one single group of people praising the community of God uh, in Zion, praising and shouting for joy. So the idea of corporate singing in verses 3 through 6 follows on the heels of singular individual praise in verses 1 and 2. I take from that, that personal responsibility to give thanks to God, verse 2, to trust God, to receive his strength and song in the work of his saving grace is first and foremost a personal responsibility that each and every one of God's children has. Starts with you before it can be y'all. So let me ask us this question. What prompts your praise and worship? What fuels your mind and your heart, your lips, and your soul to worship God? Let me submit to you this morning that the essence, the driving force, the foundation of the worship of our God is the response to his self-revelation. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 brought into the presence of God, are in the presence of God. And they respond with worship as they see the Lord seated upon his throne. Holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in the value and the honor and the worth of God, which the word glory means weightiness, is seen in the mind, is treasured in the heart. Our response uh, to and the reflecting back of his glory is the essence of worship. Worship, therefore, is our response to the revelation of God, the unveiling of who God is, all of his persons. Now, all the doxology, if you never heard the word doxology, we have doxologies in Scripture. They are this, this outburst, this glorious expression, these short hymns of praise that we see in Scripture, both from the prophets and the apostles. We see these short doxologies, and all of them are due to the response, their response of seeing with the mind, treasuring with the heart, the infinite beauty, the incalculable worth and value of God. So King David in the Old Testament could hardly contain himself. In 1 Chronicles 29, 11, he says, Yours, O Lord, yours, O Lord, it is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. It's a doxology. Paul, writing in Romans, the brilliant salvation dissertation in Romans, could hardly contain himself, but he's ending this letter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret but now revealed, disclosed through the prophets, had been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. To bring about obedience to faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's the doxology. You see, worship, which incorporates all of life, 
is our response to, to the glory and to the greatness seen not only through the, the acts and the deeds and the work of God, but ultimately the, re- ultimately the revelation is in the gospel. It is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation. Look at chapter 12, verse 2a, the first words in Isaiah. It says, behold, God is my salvation. He's telling us that first and foremost, our praise and our worship is that God in his grace saved us. Notice it is not simply that he saves, but look what it says. He is salvation. So there's no salvation apart from God. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which must, which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 1. Although God will save his people from ruin and does act as the savior of his people, Isaiah here in that verse is really describing the character of God that defines his course of action. To know him is what he's saying. To, to know God personally is to know deliverance and salvation. And not to know him is, is being deceived. You're being deceived if you do not know him. That you could save yourself or deliver yourself. You see, it's one thing to say God is salvation. It's another thing altogether to say God is my salvation. Do you know that? Is it just his job? Or do you know it? And experienced it. Not simply there is a God. It's my God. My salvation. We deserve his anger. But by his grace and mercy we received his comfort. And therefore it's appropriate to recognize that God is doing the work. It's undeserved. It's completely dependent on his grace. His love and grace. We've seen over and over. God's people's rebellious Right? We, we, we've turned our back. We've seen it all throughout the first 11 chapters. That's why Isaiah in chapter 2, the verse word you see in chapter, word, chapter 2, is the word behold. Behold is, is a word that expresses wonder, awe, of, of this new, you know, incredibly unbelievable, wonderful experience in this change of circumstances. In other words, he's like, everything I just said till we got here, can you believe God is our salvation? I mean, can, can you believe it? His anger is turned to comfort? So Isaiah begins with this commitment. I'll give you thanks. I will praise you. It's a commitment. I, this is what we will do. Followed by the cause. Why? Because your anger has turned away. And concludes with this confession. You are salvation. Verse 2b, source and strength of our praise. I will trust, I'll not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation with joy. You will draw waters from the wells of salvation. So as, as we take this personal responsibility to praise and give him thanks, being the recipients of, of God's salvific character, the, in other words, his, his personhood who saves it leads, look what it says, to the commitment of trust, not, not fear. 
It seems as we're going through this book, it seems like Isaiah's whole life has just been around trying to get people to understand and see the beauty and glory of God and to trust him and not run after false saviors. And for those who place their trust not in man, not in money, not in influence, especially not in your own strength, but in God alone, will discover all that the Lord has. He becomes their strength. He becomes their song. He becomes their salvation. You see that in that verse. It is when we are helpless, it is, is when we stand in awe and wonder of God that the power of God is manifested. It causes us to sing. Fear will depart and songs will emerge when we stand firm in our trust in God. Commentary Oswalt, he says, It is not an accident that the deliverance at the Red Sea issued in a strong, in, in a song. It's not an accident that the deliverance at the Red Sea issued in a song or that the throng gathered around the throne of the Lamb will be singing. See that in Revelation. He says, for song is the natural expression of the spirit which is free. And no spirit is so free as that one which has discovered that its destiny is not dependent upon his striving, but rather upon the infinite power of Almighty God, end quote. That's a great quote. I guess the question Isaiah would ask, are we like Ahaz? We're fearing other nations, doing what we want, not fearing ultimately in, in God, fearing more what man can do? Or are we the kind of people growing in the reverence of God, so much so that we are staking our life, we are putting our soul and our life in the hands of God, in His strength, in God's ability to save? That's what salvation, completely giving oneself over, trusting God. And this bold trust in God will Turn our song, turn our, 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 our lives into singing. Family, when, what Isaiah is saying is true for us this morning. When we come to experience personally the mighty and powerful God who on our behalf has powerfully worked our salvation, who by his omnipotent power delivered us out of the dominion of darkness where we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to death, in, in, in pursuit of hell, yet brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1. He becomes our song. Now, no matter how old you are this morning, I think all of us have seen the movie Singing in the rain. In fact, I saw it the other day on a commercial. There's Gene Kelly dancing and singing happily down the street in rain, in the puddles. He's in love. He's singing a song. Love has overwhelmed him so much so that this grown man singing in the rain, <laughs> dancing and singing, no matter what the situation was going on around him, He's in love. It is the kind of love that God puts in our hearts when we know him. The desire and the freedom to break out into song as the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of our God, his saving love fills our souls. The holy enjoyment 
The holy enjoyment of our God is what we were created for. Verse 3. With joy you will draw waters from the wells of salvation. Isaiah moves from the personal responsibility of worship to corporate worship. With joy you, you all. And I think what Isaiah is pointing to is that wandering experience that Israel had. The years they spent in the desert in constant need of water. And in constant really need of God. And even in the barren wilderness, there was life-giving springs God would provide for them. From the wells they would draw. The redeemed will draw. Gives them strength and sustains life. The water and the well of salvation. Remember, it was from the rock that God provided. At Sinai, as water gushed out from the rock. Exodus 17. And so from the springs of salvation, men and women will draw waters. In fact, if you have, I think most translations in verse 3, the word water is really plural. Waters. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's an intensive plural indicating fullness. All sufficiency. The blessings that come from the springs of salvation. The water. Water is a beautiful picture in all of the, in, in many places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of, of salvation and blessings, drinking the water, nourishing one's body. And I, I couldn't help but as I'm reading these texts this week, I couldn't help remember, I couldn't help but think back and remember when we were studying the gospel according to John. In John in chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he comes into Jerusalem, it's the final day of the feast. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It was at the end of the agricultural year. And the people of God would be celebrating this, this wonderful harvest that God had provided. They would also celebrate and remember the provision that God had given to his people as they wandered in the desert on the way to the promised land. It was a great festival. Jewish people would build uh, structures outside, um, temporary structures, booths made out of tabern- uh, excuse me, palm branches. And they would live in them for a week, just remembering all that their ancestors had gone through as God provided for them in the wilderness and protected them as they entered in, went into the promised land. Well, on the last day of the feast, two priests would get uh, uh, there would be two bands of people singing and shouting and, and priests would lead these bands of people. And one band of people would go down to the pool of Siloam which is fed by a living stream. And the priest would get a pitcher, a golden pitcher and he'd fill it up with water and they would be dancing and singing and shouting and they would come back into the temple and the other band of priests would come back with these palm branches and they would, they would, they would come at, into the temple area and as they were singing and shouting and, 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 and uh, just praising their God for all his provision, for the rock uh, that provided water, for the protection, the priest would pour the water into uh, a, a funnel next to the altar where the sacrifice was being done. And the water would pour out down the steps, into down the altar steps, as, as indication going out into the world that God, the, the God of Israel, would be satisfying enough For the whole world. The water also symbolizes that God would pour out his spirit. On the messianic age. And they were looking forward to that. And as the water is being poured out. They're singing what's called the Hallel. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They would get to the end in Psalm 118. As the water is being poured out. As they're 
excited about God's provision, all that he's done, all his protection, looking forward for the messianic kingdom, the coming of the spirit, the coming of salvation. They would sing, oh, work now. Oh, work then now for salvation. And you know what they would do at the end of the feast, right before it concluded? They would quote Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. And the last day of the feast, when it was all done and everything was done, and they were shouting with the palm branches, fruit in the one hand, looking for the coming Messiah, everything would go silent. End of the feast, last day. It was then, many commentators believe, that Jesus just stands up in the silence in the temple and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Isaiah invites the thirsty to drink, but Jesus invites them to come to him and drink. Come to me and living waters will flow from you. In other words, you have the ceremonies, you have the water poured out. But the fulfillment is here. If anyone is thirsty, is anyone looking for salvation, let him come to me and drink. Just as the water in the wilderness was provided by the goodness of God, the grace of God, the wells of salvation are provided by the grace and the goodness of God. It is a gift to us, known through the joy of the Holy Spirit. Come and drink, he says. It is with joy we draw water. The life of the believer is one of joy. We know that the burden of our guilt has been lifted. God removes that which Beria kept us from him by the work of Christ. Therefore, there is a declaration, verse 4. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among his people, proclaim his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, For he has done gloriously. Let this be known to all the earth. Sing and shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great is your midst, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. That's what we ought to be doing. For the rest of our known lives on this earth, giving thanks, proclaiming his name among the nations, celebrating his deeds, deeds among all the people. It is a, it is a worldwide mission, exalting the accomplishment and the glory of God the Father through the perfect work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring it to all the people. Now, in this text, in chapter 12, verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, it's not only plural for everyone to do corporately, but it's an imperative. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds. Proclaim His name. Sing, praise, shout, and sing for joy are all Commands, not suggestions. They're imperatives. The Puritan scholar John Trapp once said, No duty is more pressed into both testaments than this, of rejoicing in the Lord. It is no less a sin not to rejoice than not to repent, end quote. Calling upon the name of the Lord. It's, it's, not, it's not this magical paganism that we see in the health and wealth prosperity. We're just going to bind God. We're going we're to bring back his word. He's gonna make, we're going to make him do what we want him to do. That's paganism. Here's a recognition of God's reputation, his character, as he revealed himself in the word of God. 
So the call upon a name is to, is to worship him based on his faithfulness, his deliverance, his character, his word. His name is shorthand, Motier says, for all that he has revealed about himself. Abraham called upon the name of the Lord when he entered into the promised land. And these imperatives, these commands, are meant for us this morning as exhortations to to encourage the community of God's people to respond to the great grace and salvation that he has provided. The focus is continually on glorifying and exalting God. The method is to sing and to retell the story. And the result is the good news is going out into the world. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Commentator this week said this. It's kind of straightforward, but I thought it was good. I want to share with you. He says this. Smith says this. Worship and evangelism are inextricably joined as two sides of the same coin. Right? Evangelism, he says, is joyfully shouting about the exalted glory of God and retelling his wonderful deeds. Evangelism. Worship is joyfully shouting about the exalted glory of God and retelling his wonderful deeds, end quote. Said the same thing. In order for this evangelism, in order for this worldwide demonstration of the gospel, we need good deeds expressing our faith and love in God. And our deeds, remember, the things we do for the Lord are his deeds through us. Make known his deeds among the people. It's not just a verbal, I don't believe it's just a verbal acknowledgement of what God has done. That's certainly it. But Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your deeds, your good works. And give who glory? The Father. Give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Make known his deeds. Our good deeds should point to the good God in which we serve. Not selfish, but upward. Number two, we need to declare his great and glorious salvation. So people who, maybe you're here this morning, who don't know Jesus, we're, we're, we're glad you're here. We want to we tell you about the good news of the gospel. Ed Young says, when the heart overflows with the bounties of the Lord, the tongue speaks forth his praises, end quote. Declare it. Demonstrate it. Lastly, and I don't, think, I don't think it's accidental, look at the last verse. Closes with the phrase, Holy One of Israel. We've seen this over again. And, and the holiness of God just generates all that we see. His holiness is the sum total of his attributes, his deity. It's, it's foundational, expressing that which separates him from every created thing. What Isaiah has discovered and continues to see and discover is the objective truth of God's word as he revealed himself to us. And in an experiential way, all that God is doing in history. And the whole faith of Israel is about that. The Holy One in the universe, the the perfect, the spotless, the pure, the radically different one is the God of creation. Now before we ask the band to come up, And do what this text tells us to do. Sing, shout, sing, make known his deeds, give him glory, worship him. But before we do that, let's answer the question we haven't answered yet. How is God's anger turned away so that he might comfort us? We skipped over that, didn't we?
Yes, I did it on purpose. The Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, does not teach us, does not teach us that the anger of God and the wrath of God is now simply turned into love. As if God has changed his heart, had a change of heart, or even more precisely, God had a change of character, wrath to love. He no longer is as holy as he is, and now he can tolerate sin. That's not what the Scriptures teach us. The Scripture teaches us that God's wrath is settled, unchanging, anger and displeasure that opposes sin and rebellion. It's always good. It is always righteous. It is always just. Always. Never-ending. If his anger, due to his change of character... Is now, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know what we've done? We've made God into our image and likeness. We de- denigrated his integrity. The wrath of God is real. Our guilt is warranted and even required for God to be true to himself. The soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18. The wrath of God will fall upon the guilty one. The wrath of God will fall upon the guilty one. And he or she will be punished. But what if, what if the wrath of God is removed from us? What if it is visited on the punishment of sin, not on us, but on the one who in our place bears the guilt, bears the wrath, absorbs the judgment of man's sin? What if condemnation does fall? With full force, but not on us, but on a substitute. Then God can justly show his comfort to the one upon whom his wrath had formerly rested on, but now it has been satisfied by the substitute. That's the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of redemption. Although God had been angry, and indeed rightly angry, his anger has turned. God's anger has turned, turned from me to Christ. I who deserve the anger of God to be poured out upon has received now his comfort instead. In this great love for guilty sinners like you and me, Jesus changed places and went to the cross. His sacrifice is the reason why God's grace is now morally allowed to turn from anger and turn and comfort us. It was on the cross where the just wrath of a just and holy God was poured out and unsatisfied on our Savior. It was on the cross where the infinite love of God and the incalculable worth of God is on display. It is because of the cross... That though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now, that's a reason to be deeply thankful. There's a reason to shout and sing with joy to the God of our salvation. The grace of God. It is the reason we leave this place, hopefully today and throughout the week, to go into all the world. And make disciples of all nations. Telling them of the glorious work of the gospel of God. Let us shout and sing and praise and worship 
and go live a life on mission because of what God is, all that God is, and all that God has done. We're going to spend some time singing. I'll pray and the band can come up. Let us pray. Lord, it is that day. Today is the day. Today is the day we will give thanks to you. Today is the day that though you are angry, your anger has turned away. You now comfort us because of Christ. Today is the day that we will behold with wonder and awe of your salvation. A day, Lord, we will trust you and not be afraid. A day where we will get our strength from you, our song from you because of our salvation. We will drink deeply of the Holy Spirit as he points us to the gospel. We will say, call upon the name of the Lord. We will make your deeds known. We want to proclaim your name and exalt your greatness. We want to sing praises to you. You have done graciously by us in the gospel. Help us, Lord, now to shout and sing for joy, for you are great in our midst. And help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we worship you in every moment of every day and tell the world how great and awesome you are and the salvation that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. Be with us, Lord, as we sing now and help us, Lord, to see you, to worship you, and to go out from this place declaring and demonstrating how great and awesome you are in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.